Welcome to The History of the Christian Church, Season 1, with Lance Rolston. In this episode, we'll take a brief look at what came to be called spiritualism. Coming out of the 16th century, the what seemed to many at that time endless debates on doctrine and dogma, the intolerance of Christians towards one another, and the lack of any apparent movement towards resolving that mess, moved many across Europe and the New World to seek refuge in more of an abstract religious sentiment than a rigid faith of set doctrines. Another factor encouraging this mindset was a burgeoning European middle class. You see, it was only the wealthy nobility who possessed the resources for the higher education needed to foster an excessive emphasis on correct doctrine. Those who didn't have that opportunity, who couldn't wax eloquent on complicated matters of theology, were regarded as unsophisticates who depended on their betters to tell them what to believe. The spiritualist movement of the 17th and 18th centuries attracted people from all classes, from the cultured who tired of the now narrow-minded dogmatism to uneducated commoners tired of having their lives turned over by endless religious tussles. The history of the spiritualist movement is difficult to trace because it devolved into several streams that constantly mixed. Just as beliefs were a hodgepodge, so is its history. We'll examine it by taking a look at three of its leaders. Jacob Bohm was born in Silesia, Germany in 1575. His parents were strict Lutherans of humble means. By all accounts, the young Jacob had a real and rich faith. The sermons of that time were long dissertations on the theological debates of the day. These bore Jacob to tears and did nothing to spark a relationship with God. At 14, he was apprenticed to a shoemaker. Shortly after, he began having visions. It might have been one thing if he'd kept them to himself, but he didn't. He shared them. His master threw him out, saying that he wanted an apprentice, not a prophet. Bohm became a traveling cobbler, moving here and there, mending shoes. As he traveled and visited different churches, he came to the conclusion that church leaders had built a kind of confusing doctrinal Tower of Babel. He determined to set dogmatics aside and cultivate his inner spiritual life. He read everything he could lay his hands on that might help in that pursuit. His meditations led him to some conclusions on the nature of the world and man's place in it. These were then confirmed, and I use scare quotes, by visions and other spiritual experiences. But he kept his newfound convictions to himself for a time as he plied his shoe-mending trade. At 25, Jacob ended his wanderings and set up shop in Gerlitz, on the border between Germany and Poland, where he made a comfortable living as a cobbler. Although Bohm didn't see himself as a preacher, he was convinced that God wanted him to record his visions. The result was a book titled Brilliant Dawn. In it, Bohm repeatedly asserts that he was writing what God dictated word for word, and that he was no more than a pen in God's hand. Bohm didn't publish but a manuscript reached a local pastor who accused Bohm to the magistrates. Under threat of exile, Bohm promised to teach or write no more on religious matters. And for five years, he kept his promise. But in 1618, compelled by new visions and the encouragement of some admirers, he wrote anew. Without permission, one of his followers published three of his works. These reached that same pastor who again accused Bohm of heresy. He was forced to leave Gerlitz. He ended up in the court of the Elector of Saxony, where several theologians examined his teachings without reaching a conclusion. They confessed themselves unable to understand his meaning. 
they recommend that Bohm be given time to clarify his ideas. And not long after, he fell ill and returned to Gerlitz to die among friends and followers. He passed at the age of 50. The Saxony theologian's response wasn't just a dodge to avoid passing judgment on a likable guy. Bohm's writings continue to be difficult to sort out. They're a confusing mishmash of this and that, which, to be frank, is a hallmark of much of what goes under the title of spiritualism. Bohm's tomes are a mixture of traditional Christian themes with others taken from magic, alchemy, occultism, and theosophy. At points, it looks like Bohm gives a metaphor to help explain his points, but it never does. So you read it and you say, well, what does that have to do with anything? The metaphors, striking as they may be, only serve to add to the confusion. And that may very well be the overall point of his writings. There may not be a meaning to be parsed from it all. There's every possibility that Bohm used words to produce phrases that conveyed singular ideas that weren't connected. He may have aimed for a state of mind that suspended rationality and logic, one that arises out of frustration at trying to make sense of what's senseless. So one gives up, lays reason down, and then becomes hyper-suggestible. While the specifics of what Bohm was aiming for aren't clear, their basic direction is. He took aim at the lifeless dogmatism of theologians and the empty liturgy of the church. Against these, Bohm exalted the freedom of the spirit with a belief in direct revelation from God to individuals. He declared that since, quote, the letter kills, unquote, believers ought not be guided by Scripture, but by the Holy Spirit, who inspired the biblical writers and presently inspires believers. He said, quote, I have enough with the book that I am. If I have within me the Spirit of Christ, the entire Bible is in me. Why would I wish for more books? Why discuss what is outside while not having learned what is within me, unquote. Huh, ironic then that he wrote books. Bohm had few followers during his lifetime, but later his writings gained admirers. In England, some formed a Bohmanist movement. Some clashed with the Quakers, who we'll take a look at next. So, the spiritualist movement, born in part as a protest against the doctrinal debates of traditional theology, was eventually embroiled in similar controversies. George Fox was born in a small English village the same year that Jacob Bohm died, 1624. Like Bohm, Fox was of humble origin and a cobbler's apprentice. At 19, disgusted at the immorality of his fellow apprentices, he quit and began the life of an itinerant religious seeker. He attended meetings of all sorts, seeking spiritual illumination. He devoted himself to the study of scripture until he committed most of it to memory. Fox's pursuit of spiritual illumination was a roller coaster of highs and lows. There were times when he had mystical experience that thrilled, followed by a season where he despaired of finding the path that would lead to what he sought. He came to the conviction that all the various sects of England were wrong and their worship an abomination to God. Fox challenged much of traditional Christianity. He reasoned that if God doesn't dwell in houses made by human hands, as the scriptures said, how dare anyone call buildings where they gather churches? They are, in truth, no more than houses with bell towers. For Fox, pastors paid a salary aren't real shepherds, but priests and journeymen. Hymns, orders of worship, sermons, sacraments, creeds, ministers, are all human hindrances to the freedom of the Spirit. Over against all of these, Fox placed 
what he called the inner light. This was a seed that existed in all people and was the true way to find God. Fox said that the Calvinist doctrine of total depravity was a denial of God's love. On the contrary, he maintained, there's an inner light in all, no matter how dim it may be. And thanks to that light, pagans can be saved as well as Christians. This light, however, must not be confused with the intellect or conscience. It's the capability that all have to recognize and accept the presence of God. By it, we're able to believe and understand Scripture. So, communication with God through the inner light is previous to and independent of any communication by external means. Although those close to Fox knew of the fire that was burning within him, for several years he abstained from proclaiming what he was convinced he discovered regarding the true meaning of faith in Christianity. At the time, there were in England several religious sects, and Fox attended all of them without finding contentment in any. Finally, he felt called to speak out at a Baptist meeting, announcing what he now believed. From that point on, such urgings became more frequent. In gatherings of various religious groups, Fox declared that he'd been commanded by the Spirit to announce his new vision of the faith. He was often treated with contempt and hostility, thrown out of meetings, beaten and stoned. But all such didn't stop him. Soon, he was in another house with a belfry, interrupting the service and proclaiming his message. Fox's followers grew rapidly. At first, they called themselves Children of Light. But Fox preferred the title Friends, which later became their official name. They were soon called Quakers by outsiders. The name came from their tendency to tremble with fervency when they prayed. In 1652, George Fox gained the support of Margaret Fell, a noblewoman widowed in 1658. She became a leader in the movement and used her position to lend it an air of credibility and protection. But political opposition grew, and she was arrested for supporting the movement. Her property was confiscated, and she was sentenced to life in prison. After being released by the king, she married Fox in 1669. The rest of their lives were spent teaching and in missions, which were repeatedly interrupted by rounds of imprisonment. Fox died in 1691, his wife Margaret a decade later. Since the friends believed that structure in worship was an obstacle to the spirit, their services took place in silence. Any who felt called to speak or pray aloud were free to do so. When the Spirit moved them, women had the same right to speak as men. Fox himself did not prepare a message, but simply allowed the Spirit to move him in the moment. There were times when many gathered, hoping to hear him speak, but he refused. Also, Quakers didn't include the traditional sacraments of baptism and communion. They feared that physical water, bread, and wine would draw attention away from the spiritual. Fox was aware of the danger his emphasis on the freedom of the spirit might lead to in excessive individualism. Other movements with a similar emphasis hadn't lasted long. The exercise of individual freedom inevitably leads to the dissolving of the group. Fox avoided this by underscoring the importance of community and love. In friends' meetings, decisions aren't made by a majority. If a unanimous agreement is not reached, the decision is postponed and the meeting continues in silence, until the Spirit offers a solution. If one isn't received, the matter is left pending for another occasion. Many disliked the teachings and practices of the Quakers. Religious leaders resented the way that they interrupted their services to preach or read scripture. Authorities saw the need to teach a lesson to these friends who refused to pay tithes, swear oaths, bow to their betters, or uncover their head before any but God. Quakers argued that 
since God was addressed in the familiar thou, no one else ought to be addressed by the more respectful you. To those used to the submission of their inferiors, well, that was an intolerable insubordination. So, Fox was repeatedly beaten and spent years in prison. He was sent to prison the first time for interrupting a preacher who declared the ultimate truth was to be found in Scripture. Fox said that wasn't true. Ultimate truth was in the Spirit who inspired Scripture. On other occasions, he was accused of blasphemy and of conspiring against the government. When the authorities offered a pardon, he refused, declaring he wasn't guilty. To accept a pardon for something that he hadn't done was a lie. On another occasion, when serving six months for blasphemy, he was offered freedom in exchange for service in the army. He refused, declaring that Christians ought not use weapons other than those the Spirit provided. His sentence was prolonged by an additional six months. When he wasn't in prison, Fox spent his time in Margaret's home, Swarthmore Hall. It became headquarters to the Friends. The rest of the time, he traveled England and abroad, visiting Quaker meetings and taking his message to new areas. First, he went to Scotland, where he was accused of sedition, then to Ireland. He spent two years in the Caribbean and North America, and made two visits to the continent. In all these places, he gained converts, and by the time of his death in 1691, his followers ran to the tens of thousands. Like Fox, they were persecuted. They were thrown in jail for vagrancy, blasphemy, inciting riots, and refusing to pay tithes. In 1664, Charles II issued an edict forbidding unlicensed religious assemblies. Many groups continued gathering in secret. But the Quakers declared that it would be a lie to do so, and so they openly met disobeying the edict. Thousands were imprisoned, and by the time religious tolerance was granted in 1689, hundreds had died in prison. The most famous of Fox's followers was William Penn, after whom the state of Pennsylvania was named. His father was a British admiral who tried to secure for him the best education available. While he was a student, William Penn became a Puritan. Then, while studying in France, he came under the influence of the Huguenots. In 1667, back in England, he became a Quaker. His father, not knowing what to do with his fanatical son, threw him out of the house. Penn stayed true to his convictions and eventually spent seven months in the Tower of London. He sent word to the king that the tower was the worst argument to convince him. And so no matter who was right, whoever uses force to seek religious assent is necessarily wrong. Finally, thanks to the intervention of his father and other well-placed friends, Penn was set free. He then spent several years raising a family, traveling throughout Europe, and writing in defense of the friends. Penn then conceived of the idea of what he called his holy experiment. Some friends had spoken to him about New Jersey in North America. The crown owed Penn's father a considerable amount of money, and when William's father died, that debt fell to the son. Since King Charles wasn't able to pay, Penn asked instead for a grant of land in the New World. It became known as Penn's Wood, Pennsylvania. His purpose was to found a new colony in which there would be complete religious freedom. By then, other British colonies had been founded in North America, but with the exception of Rhode Island, all were marked by religious intolerance. In Massachusetts, the most intolerant of the colonies, Quakers were persecuted, condemned to exile, mutilated, and sometimes executed. What Penn now proposed was a new colony in which all would be free to worship according to their own convictions. This seemed bad enough to an intolerant age, but even worse was Penn's plan to buy from the Indians the land the crown had granted him. 
He was convinced that the Indians and not the crown were the legitimate owners of the land, and he hoped to establish such cordial relations with them that the settlers would have no need to defend themselves by force of arms. The capital of this holy experiment would be called Philadelphia, the city of fraternal love. No matter how ill-conceived Penn's experiment seemed to the enlightened Brits, soon there were many, not only in England, but also other parts of Europe, willing to take part in it. Many of them were Quakers, and therefore the Friends dominated the political life of the colony for some time. But there were also settlers of many different persuasions. Under the leadership of Penn, first governor of the colony, relations with the Indians were excellent, and for a long time his dream of a peaceful settlement was a reality. The last spiritualist that we'll look at today is Emanuel Swedenborg. Born in 1688, three years before Fox's death, Emanuel Swedenborg was born to an aristocratic family in Sweden. He received his education at the University of Uppsala and spent five years traveling England, the Netherlands, France, and Germany. The goal of these travels was the quest for knowledge. While Fox and Bohm pursued religious enlightenment, the young Swedenborg was after scientific knowledge. After many years of scientific inquiry, Swedenborg claimed that he had a vision of being carried into the spiritual world where he saw eternal truths. He wrote expansively on the true meaning of reality and scripture. He said that all that exists is a reflection of the attributes of God. Therefore, the visible world corresponds with the invisible one. The same is true of scripture, which reflects truths that can only be known by those who've entered the spiritual world. Swedenborg was convinced that his writings would form the beginning of a new era in the history of the world and religion. He claimed that what had taken place when he received his revelations was what the Bible meant when speaking of the second coming of Christ. As expected, these ideas weren't well received by his contemporaries. His circle of followers was small. He didn't feel called to found a new movement, but to call the existing church to a new understanding of its nature and message. Since that didn't work out so well, in 1784, 12 years after his death, his disciples founded the Church of the New Jerusalem, whose members were never many, but which survives to our time. In the 19th century, the Swedenborgian Society was founded with the purpose of publishing and distributing Swedenborg's writings. Thanks for joining us at Communio Sanctorum. We really appreciate your listening and subscribing. Listeners are invited to like the Communio Sanctorum Facebook page and to write a review in the iTunes store. For both Facebook and iTunes, search for History of the Christian Church. Looking forward to joining you next time.